It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Before we started recording today's episode, we started speaking about the difference between knowing and doing, which I'm really excited to dive in with you. And before we begin, would you please introduce yourself in the full pronunciation of your name? Because I always love to hear our guests share how they pronounce it, because I have a tendency to do a very... <laughs> Americanized pronunciation. And also, even with names that feel familiar to other people, I tend to mispronounce. So will you please pronounce your full name for me and the listener? Well, my name is not familiar at all. So I wouldn't blame you regardless. My first name is Najwa and my last name is Zabian. So I'm Najwa Zabian. So beautiful. Thank you. And I love that. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, it's interesting with names before we get into the subject I just mentioned. I, a few episodes back, there was a guest who had a much more complicated name. Actually, I would have pronounced it Najwa as well. So I'm glad that my instinct was right. But names in general, especially more complex names, I've been reflecting on. I often feel insecure. But again, even like common names, I'm trying to think of an easy example here, but there are names that I see written all of the time and feel familiar to me as on the page, right? But saying them out loud, it's just a personal thing for me that I tend to stumble and I feel insecure because I think it's such an important way to honor somebody by properly pronouncing their name. And so I see it as a form of respect and I think it's a skill that actually every time I come up against this that I want to practice more, you know, because I studied French growing up in high school and I know a lot of French. I can read it quite well and I still feel incredibly uncomfortable speaking it. And it's this fear that I will get it wrong. It's this fear that I will sound stupid or silly or I will... Um, just embarrassing, right? And so it's kept me all these years, especially since high school where I'm not practicing it every day like I used to, it's kept me from speaking a language that I love because I'm embarrassed, because I feel shame around it. And I think I would love to dive into this a little bit more before we circle back to the other topic as with your name, is it common for people to mispronounce your name? Is it common for people to feel insecure about it? Like, what's that like for you? Well, it's common for people to mispronounce my name. I don't know that it's common for them to feel embarrassed as a result. I find that as soon as I tell someone, like, this is actually how you pronounce my name, it's not Najwa or Najwa, it's Najwa. Usually the reaction I get is, oh, that's so beautiful. I rarely get like, oh, I'm so sorry or, you know. I think the way that it's spelt is Najwa. And if you've never been to a country where the spoken language is Arabic, because Najwa is an Arabic name, you wouldn't know. How would you know? So I used to allow people to pronounce my name however they want to. I used to actually, I remember after moving to Canada at 16, 
my teachers would say Najwa or Najwa and I would be fine by it. And then I started introducing myself that way because I thought that's how most people say it anyway. So they're going to say it that way. So why not pronounce it this way? And then when I started teaching, I was working with ESL students and English as a second language for those who don't know. They would walk into the class and when I would see them doing that, like saying their name, not the way that it actually is pronounced, it would bother me because I know from research, because I did my master's in multiliteracies and multilingualism, your name is a big part of your identity. So I would remind them to say their name as it is and, you know, not shy away from it. And there were some kids who changed their whole name because they wanted it to be pronounced properly. And in a way, it felt like they were erasing part of their identity because they just figured the world is not going to understand this part of my identity anyway. So once I started advocating for them and helping them understand, like, no, this is who you are. People should learn how to say your name. They can say your name. It also like increases their confidence, it increases your confidence to be able to say, like, this is who I am. It might be uncomfortable for you to learn how to say my name, maybe stumble a few times before you get it right. But I would like for you to say my name properly. I even had a couple of friends or colleagues in my master's program who were from China and their names were very hard to pronounce. And I remember them saying, like giving me a completely different name, saying, this is not my name, but just you can call me this. And I'm like, no, I actually want to learn your name. And I just remember the level of appreciation I felt from them because I took the time to say their names properly. So for me, you know, that advocacy for others reminded me to do the same thing for myself. Yeah. Yes. And thank you so much for articulating that way and sharing your experience. And this is what I mean. And I also feel like it's likely white privilege. It's the result of being in America is that it feels like, oh, well, I don't have to learn how to say your name. It's excusable. I can say, oh, I don't know how to pronounce it and avoid it, you know. But to your point, it's part of somebody's identity and it doesn't feel fair for me to use excuses because it makes me uncomfortable, right? It's a form of honor for all the reasons that you expressed. And it's my responsibility to work through the discomfort and practice that more often, like I mentioned, because I mean, this is something that I've been reflecting on for the past year and a half or so since I became more committed to learn about racism and all of these subtle ways in which I participated as a white person in racism, simply through things like that of like, oh, well, it's uncomfortable for me, so I'm not going to do it, right? Versus actually, it's my responsibility to get uncomfortable, just like the name of the show, because it's not about me. Like your name is about you. And my discomfort in pronouncing it is actually something I have to own up to, not try to escape and like put the burden on you to have to change your name or something, right? I think the responsibility is reciprocal in this case, because just like it's your responsibility to overcome that discomfort that you know you'll experience by saying something that you've never said before or learning how to say something and just saying like, this is how it's said. I'm going to make it part of my dictionary. This is how this name is said. Maybe this is a new sound. This is a new way to roll the R in someone's name, whatever it is. 
I also think it's the responsibility of the person whose name is different to advocate for themselves without assuming 100% of the responsibility is on the person learning it. Because of the person learning it, and this is not just about names, it's also about cultural norms, religious norms, whatever it is that you want the host community or the general community to know, it's your responsibility to speak up as well. So I feel like it's an exchange, just like it's your responsibility to speak up. It's also your responsibility to learn about this host community that you are part of, you know, because I've been part of conversations where people say, no, it's fully the responsibility of the host community, especially when it comes to conversations about white privilege and stuff. And I'm always thinking there is a responsibility on both. There has to be an exchange. There has to be a level of openness on both sides. It can't just be one because I feel like that opens room for resentment and for doing things out of tolerance and not genuine respect for the other, whatever it is, culture, religion, identity, whatever it is. Yes. And I'm so glad that we're speaking about this because it's actually not something that has been addressed on this podcast in the way that you're expressing it. So thank you so much for that. And it's very complicated. And I think because it feels uncomfortable, I've never even brought it up. So I feel, (laughs) I mean, I have in the sense that I express that I feel embarrassed because I have trouble pronouncing things, but and names specifically. It also reminds me of a book I started listening to as an audiobook and reading as well recently by a former guest named Celeste Headley. And she just came out with a book called Speaking of Race. One line in that book that really stuck with me is how people want to talk about race when they feel like the other person's going to agree with them or they feel like it's going to be comfortable. Again, sat with me. One of my aims in life is to not shy away from things that make me uncomfortable. But I do find myself doing it sometimes. It's like sometimes we have to catch ourselves when we're going towards comfort or we have these old habits. And it would make sense growing up as like being younger, more ignorant or whatever stage you're in. And you've practiced doing things like the name pronunciation issue as we're talking about here, or perhaps on your side, trying to cater to others, which is part of it, right? You're either trying to make yourself feel more comfortable or you're trying to make others feel more comfortable or both at the same time. And we get into these habits habits where we're seeking out comfortable situations. And if it's uncomfortable, it's like, well, I'm going to skirt away from it so I don't have to change. And when I heard that line in the book, I thought, well, I actually want to seek out more uncomfortable conversations around race because how else am I going to learn otherwise? So, you know, hearing your perspectives on this is so refreshing because it's giving me a new way of looking at the experience that you're having as somebody with Well, think about it from the perspective of someone maybe who has racist thoughts or beliefs or tendencies. They also want to speak to those, you know, if they're going to have a conversation about race, they want to speak to somebody who's not going to make them feel like they're in the wrong, right? So it's not just from the perspective of the person who is trying to learn more and be more open-minded and to understand the experiences of others. It's also from the perspective of those who have those beliefs that need to be changed. And so imagine the discomfort you feel when you're having a conversation with someone who, for example, makes a racist comment. 
like, how does that feel? Are you open to having a conversation with that person and maybe trying to change their perspective or their understanding or maybe try to use your empathy and their empathy to help change their mind? Or are you going to say, you know what, this person is completely closed minded, I'm not going to do this, because that's the conversation that matters. That's the conversation that's going to make a difference. It's not just sitting in spaces where everyone agrees with you. They already believe what you believe. So for me, the discomfort that most of us want to stay away from is the discomfort we feel when we're speaking to someone who has a completely opposite polarized belief than the one that we have. We shut down, they shut down, nothing changes. You know, somebody who's of a complete opposite belief about me, about, uh, you know, when it comes to race or the rights of those who are from marginalized communities or whatever, that person might want to sit in spaces where everyone agrees with them that it's a survival of the fittest, you know, we're not going to do any, and I'm coming at this from an educational background, right? I became a teacher, I'm doing my doctorate in education, I'm trying to do research, a marginalized population of students. And so differentiation is such a big thing in the classroom and schools. And for those listening, differentiation is basically you're looking at the needs of that specific student or the specific population of students. You can apply this to any part of society, not just in school, and say, what do they need? Because when we talk about equality, we forget that equity is the actual word we need to be using, which is give this population what it needs. You don't give everybody the same thing. But you might sit in a space where someone says, too bad. You know, you have to pave your own path like I did 50 years ago or and so you have to be willing to be uncomfortable in spaces where your whole belief system is going to be challenged because that's your opportunity to affect maybe like a little tiny bit of change and then someone else might affect a little tiny bit of change and maybe you know, I don't believe that like a person who has racist thoughts or racist beliefs, like I'll never say they're justified in what they think. I simply don't believe that. But what if I tried to understand why that person believes what they believe so that maybe I could give them a different way of seeing things or a different perspective or a different experience. I feel like stories are so powerful. Like when somebody has a certain belief and you tell them a story of yours that like a personal story that completely defies that belief, it's very hard for that person sitting across from you to look at you as a human, a human that they've connected with at some level and deny that story. Or even if they do deny it, it's going to leave them with something because they're believing what they're believing based on certain stories that they've seen or heard or experienced themselves or someone they love went through something. And now you're adding to those stories. Maybe with time, they balance each other out. You just don't know. But for me, that's where discomfort is so important and it's real. I feel like when we talk about discomfort, sometimes obviously any kind of discomfort that you feel is valid. But for me, like that deep discomfort where you're like, I really don't want to be having this conversation like this just irks me on so many levels. You have to feel that to be able to effect change in the world. So, yeah, that's my commentary on that. It's beautiful. And I love your passion and clarity with this. And 
It makes sense because you're talking about the teaching background, the educational background, but you're an activist, you're a poet, you're a speaker as well. And I can see how that is all part of the work that you do because just in what you shared, it's all coming out. You can see the activism element of this. And also when you're talking about storytelling, I'm thinking about poetry, right? And how poetry is a form of storytelling either in the short form or long form poetry. And I'm curious how that developed for you because when I was growing up, I was in poetry clubs (laughs) at high school. And I laugh now because it is no longer resonating with me in the way that it did when I was in high school. But I was so into it. I would go to poetry slams and I would write things. And like I completely forgot about that until I started talking to you and reflecting back on what it was like to write and read poetry so much. Just like in a way with my language skills in high school, I was practicing another language all the time. Now as an adult, I'm like, oh, I don't need to do that. I'm not like around a lot of French speaking people, so I can lose that. And Similarly, like poetry is not something that I personally spend a lot of time reading or writing. I'm curious what that journey has been like for you. Where did that start in your life and how has it evolved over time and contributed to your work as an educator, activist and speaker? Well, my earliest recollections of being exposed to poetry are childhood experiences. My dad used to buy all kinds of books on history and poetry and literature. And he had this massive, like one of the walls in our house was bookshelf. Like the whole wall was just full of books. And I would sit there and pick a book. And even though my dad told me, like, these ones you're not supposed to read because they're inappropriate in some ways, I would still read them because I loved words. I love the power that comes with words. I love just the play on words, everything. And when we would go places, my dad had little tapes of music that he would play that was all like older Arabic music. And it's all poetry. Like when I would listen to the words and the emotion with the words and like the depth of it, I don't even know how to explain it to you. I just felt like my soul was, it was soul food for me, but I didn't even know what soul was or soul food was, but I felt like a full whole being, like I'm being seen and heard and understood. So over the years, I just continued to read and continued to enjoy the power of words and when I moved to Canada at 16. So long story short, my parents got married in Canada, had five kids, and then decided to move to Lebanon, where they're originally from. And that's where I was born. So I'm the only one in my family born and raised in Lebanon. My siblings were much older. My parents were obviously much older. And I lived a childhood that felt like a very lonely one. So I started writing in a journal at 13. And those writings were just this is how I'm feeling. This is, these are the thoughts that are going through my mind because I never really had a consistent sense of home or, you know, my parents were traveling back and forth between Lebanon and Canada and my siblings, they would leave the moment they hit 18 or even less than that for some of them. There were always people leaving out of my life and I was living with whatever relative could take care of me. And so I always felt this ache to be loved and cared for and to feel like I was a priority to someone and to feel like, you know, I would look at those around me, like kids who were my age or my cousins and see how nurtured they were emotionally. And obviously as a child, I couldn't put those words to it, but I would see something that I wanted. 
And in Welcome Home, which is my fourth book that just came out, this is the first book where I actually write poetry and stories. It's more of a memoir, poetry, real life strategies that you can use to build a home within. But I share that story in Welcome Home where it was that, like the moment that I would see someone my age or around my age be loved and be nurtured in some way or be held in some way or hugged or like I would see them feeling significant by an adult in their life. I would have this ache in my heart that's like, why can't I have that? That is the word I could put to it. I couldn't explain it, but I wanted that. And so I just always felt like I didn't deserve it because I never got it and I never knew what it felt like. I just admired it from a distance and like maybe this is just how my life is. So writing was my way to promise myself that that is somewhere. It's in the future, but I will get it one day. And so when I moved to Canada at 16, I came here to visit my family, and it's where I currently live. I came here to visit my family, and then the war broke out in Lebanon, so I wasn't able to go back. So what felt like, obviously, I was extremely grateful that I was able to be here and experience all the opportunities that I most likely would not have been able to experience in Lebanon. I was very grateful for that, even though I was 16. And, you know, at 16, you're not exactly supposed to be the most mature version of yourself. But I was very mature at 16. And I could see that this is a great opportunity for me. But it didn't feel like a choice. It felt like forced choice. So... There was a part of me that just died on the inside because I felt like every time I would sit down and write in my journal, it's like that pain awakened. You know, I was validating it for myself, but I was also very aware that there was nothing I could do to change it. Like here I am in a country that, yes, I speak the language, my family's here, but it doesn't feel like home to me. Even Lebanon didn't fully feel like home to me. But you know, I knew the streets and I knew the language and I, my grandma is there and my friends in school and just everything changed. And so I didn't want to write anymore. And I stopped writing for seven years until I became a teacher. And during those years, I will tell you, yes, I was numb, but I was very sadly numb. Like there was a deep sadness underneath that numbness that just it was more like just do what you're told and you will get to a place where you will get that maybe one day who knows but I completely gave up my power over my life and followed what my parents said and what community said and what culture said and what religion said and I was such a good girl like I was the perfect I just never caused trouble. I never raised my voice. I was the one quiet girl in every single group that there is out there and just never really made a statement in any way. And once I became a teacher, the very first day of my teaching career, I guess, the principal walked in and he had eight students with him from grade two to grade eight and said, these are your responsibility for the rest of the year. And he said they just arrived from Libya, which was torn by war that year. I'll never forget exactly where we were standing in the school when he brought them to me. And I remember the look in their eyes. It was the same look that I knew I had when I was 16 and first arrived here. Like, what am I doing here? 
yes, I'd been to Canada before, but now it's like real. Now I'm living here. What am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't fit in here. You know, back home, I used to do so well in school. Everyone knew me. My grades were like great. And now I'm in this place where it's like I have to fight for a place. And I saw that look in their eyes and I just wanted to fight for them. Like something inside of me was like, tell these kids they belong here. They don't need to fight for a seat at the table. So I started writing again to empower them. And that's what led me back to writing to heal my 16-year-old self. And it took the form of short reflections and short poems and longer poems and longer reflections. And the rest is history. So that's my journey with poetry. But at the end of the day, it was poetry and writing. You know, sometimes you read people's writings and not just you can tell, but some people will say like, my writing is, it's just a creative thing that's not necessarily based on my life. But for me, writing and poetry have always been, like, even if I'm not writing about my own experience at some point, I'm still like fully harvesting emotion I had or something that I just very deeply experienced and I'm trying to portray it. So my words are always coming from a place of I know what this feels like. And if I don't know what it feels like, I know what it must feel like to go through something like that. Because at the end of the day, any kind of emotion that you experience or thought or belief that you have about yourself It all really comes down to very basic human emotions that we all experience. Like, think of the number of things that you could write about that at the end of the day come down to a feeling of exclusion, of I don't belong here. So that's what healed me. I can't tell you that any kind of therapy helped me more than writing did. I can't tell you that any kind of, not that I'm telling people don't seek therapy if you need it. But for me in particular, giving myself a voice and giving myself the validation that I need and giving myself the understanding that I need and seeing myself and hearing myself, which all of this, accepting myself, being aware of myself, all of that was part of building that home within. So that was referring to earlier is within me. It's nowhere outside of me. So yeah, that's my journey with writing. That is so beautiful. I mean, you have such a way with words. It's very healing just to listen to you from my perspective. You articulate yourself in such a remarkable way, but you know what you're describing, it, it's been unfolding through so much of your life and this subject matter of belonging. And even when you talked about feeling excluded, it just has me reflecting so much, of course, from my own perspectives and what I hear from other people, which is often this fear of self-expression. So everything you articulated is very empowering and inspiring because it shows the power of that form of self-expression that maybe you don't share with other people in the way that you do. Or maybe you don't start off by it, like it could be just your private journal or your private poetry collection, which again, I did a lot when I was growing up. And now that you're articulating it, it helps me reflect back on why I was doing that, right? It was an outlet. It was, I have so many pieces of poetry that I've saved. Sometimes I've looked at it and thought, wow, like I wrote so much. And and a lot of it's kind of embarrassing (laughs) now as an adult. It feels like, wow, this is really cheesy. 
But at the time, that was like, it just kind of poured out of me. I wasn't second guessing it. And sometimes I yearn for that experience again, because as an adult, it can go both ways or one way, meaning that I feel like as an adult, I've gotten to know myself. I feel more of a sense of belonging and empowerment and confidence. But also there's a side of me that doesn't feel as confident and clear as I did as a teenager when I was doing all of that writing, because back then it was just flowing. And now I feel like I've stopped the flow because of exactly what I talked about at the very beginning, this fear of being judged, this fear of looking bad at something. I mean, a great example as a content creator on the podcast, this happens to me too. I get in my head sometimes. I'm like, oh, like I want to make a really great podcast, but you know, I'm afraid that it's going to be misinterpreted or I'm afraid that it's not appealing or what, you know, I can get on and on in my head. And as a content creator in general, especially with video, there's so much insecurity there. And I recently started a new project on TikTok where I'm making new videos every day. And it's so uncomfortable because every time I make a video, I think this isn't good. Somebody's going to find something wrong with it. They're going to write a mean comment. And sometimes that does happen. But actually, that process of allowing myself to just do it anyways makes it easier and easier the next time because it gets into that flow that I used to have that used to feel so effortless. But sometimes we have to force ourselves into it to get the results that you're speaking of. And so that's what I'm taking away listening to you is how important it is for the self-expression because a lot of times it's coming out of a place of already feeling judged. So it's like two levels. I feel like I don't belong. I feel excluded. I feel judged. I feel shame, whatever emotions going on. But I'm not even going to allow myself to put that into a form of self-expression because I'm so deep within it already that I can't even get started if it makes sense. So the process of getting started and just doing it privately and saying, let me express to myself that is healing within yourself. And then maybe it starts to shine outwards because the more we get to the core of who we are and that deeper understanding, it becomes easier to cope through life or, or not even just cope, to go through life with that more confidence and clarity. So it's kind of like a chicken before the egg process or acknowledging that it has to start somewhere, right? And it doesn't have to be perfect or right. And this actually also came up in Celeste Headley's book, Speaking of Race. She talks about how you're never going to write something that pleases everybody. You're not going to say something right all the time. People will find these criticisms. And we live in this culture right now, and I'm really curious about your observations about this, the cancel culture, the accountability culture, there are elements of that are so important, especially when it comes to things like racism and any form of bullying, exclusivity, like all of these issues that we have culturally, but it can get to an extreme sometimes. So this idea of like people become afraid to speak which apparently is the theme of this episode of this fear of doing it wrong or being criticized because we have this looming fear of cancel culture or being just excluded from the group if we get it wrong and we want to fit in in a lot of ways. So going back to something you mentioned about yourself of like being quiet and being good and doing everything right, like we try to like, or many of us, I can't speak for everyone, but I, for myself, definitely try to fit myself into this mold of like, if I just do it right and well and good, I will be accepted, I will feel loved. But if that's not my full expression, if that's not my truth, if I'm not allowing myself to stumble through some of this, it's actually not the type of love and validation that I actually need. It's not deep. Well, 
it can be a, it very likely is a trauma response, right? When you are exhibiting those people pleasing behaviors just so that you could get their love in some way or deserve, earn their love in some way. And so many of us do that because we we talk about this in Welcome Home as well. You know, building a home in another person could take the form of seeking their validation that you deserve love. And that process of seeking that validation or that love or that acceptance or that you're on the right track or, you know what, I'm pleased with you, therefore you are okay. Just that feeling of, you know, not wanting to disappoint someone or wanting to live up to someone else's expectations. All of those are forms of building your home outside of you because home is emotional safety. It's the place where you feel like you could be fully and wholly yourself and you are loved for who you are. You don't have to change part of who you are just so that you could get all of those things that I just talked about. And so when you're seeking those things outside of you, you're building your home outside of you. You're building your sense of this is enough. This is okay. This is worthy outside of you. And so when you do that, you are not the one in charge of saying, this is who I am. You're allowing someone else to tell you who you need to be and who you should be. And so going back to what you were talking about earlier, when you were saying like, you know, it was much easier for me to write when I was younger, and I was a lot more confident. It's because the older you become, the more you've allowed others to chip away at who you are or who you can be who you have permission to be. So maybe when you were younger, someone gave you permission to express yourself. It could have been a teacher. It could have been a group that you were part of. But now that permission isn't there. Now there's a lot of judgment that comes with expressing yourself. There's a lot of judgment that comes with expressing feelings. Like when I first started posting my writings online, I had family members tell me, what are you doing? Like, this is embarrassing. Don't do this. Don't post your writings online. And it was like, this is what the world needs. So I'm going to tell you and whoever is listening, one strategy that I came up with in Welcome Home, where it's like, define your audience. Who is your audience? So when you are about to do something and you're afraid, you're nervous, you're worried that you're going to be excluded or judged or, oh my, they're going to think something or they're going to be so disappointed. Okay, write that audience down. It most likely is a number that's like less than 20. And even if it was a number that's up to 1,000 or 10,000 or whatever, there is always a bigger audience, which is the whole world. There are people out there who are sitting in that same dark corner that you are currently sitting in and you're using whatever it is that you created. Maybe it's a piece of writing, maybe it's a piece of art, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a dance, whatever it is. There are people out there who are feeling so alone and isolated because they have the exact same thought about something they want to express in some way. So who's your audience? Is it the people who are judgmental towards you, who are going to exclude you because you took a risk of some sort, who are going to make you feel like you don't deserve love as a result of doing something genuinely for yourself that's not intended to hurt them in any way? Or is your audience those 
who are like you, who have the empathy that you have, who are seeking the same kind of courage and bravery that you are seeking. So once you're able to say, this is the audience that I am serving, the other audience just becomes so small and insignificant. And the more you focus on the audience that you are serving, the less and less weight this smaller audience like has, the less you feel it on your back, on your heart, on your in a figurative kind of way. For me, that's been pivotal because I've spoken up in the past about experiences that I was threatened legally not to speak about. And I was asked by the media, like, aren't you afraid that you're going to get sued? Like you were just threatened. And I I said this on TV. I said, my audience aren't the people who are trying to silence people like me. My audience are the people who are sitting in a dark corner, who have no platform, no one to speak up for them. That's my audience. That's who I speak for. That's whose voice I amplify. I don't amplify the voices of bullies and the voices of those who are out there being judgmental and threatening towards others. It's very empowering to think that way. Again, this cancel culture scares us because we want to feel included. We don't want to feel like we don't fit into a certain group or whatever it is, but like really reflect on this. If it's a lot worse for you to be excluded by a group of people and not be yourself, like you're being included based on you hiding part of yourself. If that's easier for you than you being who you are, and not having to change parts of who you are to please someone else, then you have a lot of work to do. Then you have built your sense of identity and home outside of you, and you need to come back to yourself. Because at the end of the day, if you are changing who you are to belong somewhere, you are not the one who's belonging. It's the version that you created that wants to feel included that's belonging. But you're going to continue feeling like a complete stranger to yourself and to others wherever you are, as long as you live that way. Wow. I had this moment of just wishing that I had heard these words so long ago because it really resonates with me on so many levels. As somebody who considers themselves a recovering people pleaser, that trauma response and that coping, it's just like, again, getting into these old habits. And I know I'm not alone in this. So I'm so grateful that you're sharing it and articulating it in this way that I truly have just never heard before. And it's such a powerful healing thing. And it actually ties back into that point that we were going to make at the very beginning that it felt like we hadn't come back around to it. It's actually been here this whole time. And that's how you want to talk about the difference between knowing and doing and this what we feel like we should know better or we should do better. And we've actually done entire episodes about the word should in the past and how damaging that word can be. And it also reminds me of something, a line that I just really loved in 
either it was your bio or it was uh, one of the pieces that I was reading about you. It said that you learn to build a stable foundation inside yourself, an identity independent of cultural expectations and the influence of others. And I put that in bold. <laughs> That's, That's what your I book is that. about. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, to me, when I read that line, I thought, yes, oh, I want to learn that on another level. You know, I've been working on it. I've been, it's a practice. And I want to come back around though, because we could just keep riffing on this over and over again. But I want to make sure that we touch upon what you wanted to from the very beginning, which is the difference between knowing and doing. What does that mean for you? Why is that phrase resonating with you today? Because so many of us know everything there is to know about self-worth and self-love and what we deserve and what we don't deserve and what's right by ourselves and what's not right, what's wrong in terms of what we accept when it comes to people treating us and everything. But when it comes to actually applying it, like when we're put in a situation where, okay, now it's time for you to practice what you believe, you somehow excuse the behavior because you are an empath or because you have a hard time accepting that maybe other people genuinely have a bad intention. Maybe they really do want to hurt you. Maybe they, it's like you have a hard time because your worldview is everybody is always coming from a good place. And I've fallen into that my whole life, I would say. Part of writing Welcome Home was learning to not abuse my own empathy against myself. As in, you know, there comes a time where you can say, I can empathize with you. I can understand where you're coming, but I can also say, I don't deserve this. Like I can understand that you are in pain and that's why you are spilling pain on me. But I also have the right to say, I'm not okay with that. So for me, writing Welcome Home was all about transferring knowledge to practice, to action. And part of that was, you know, the missing piece for me was because self-love is one of the chapters or the rooms in Welcome Home, because I've divided it in a way where you're actually building a home within. And you know what? I know everything there is to know about self-love. Like if I'm having a conversation with a friend or if I'm standing on stage giving a speech, I know everything there is to know about what's right and wrong and boundaries and, you know, expressing yourself and standing up for yourself. But then when it would happen to me, I would be like, it's like I was in the role of a therapist instead of I'm somebody who is like equal in this relationship or friendship or whatever it is. And so for me, discovering what the missing element was like, how do I know all these things, but I'm not able to practice them? It's because I had no solid foundation for myself. And the foundation in Welcome Home is about self-acceptance and self-awareness. You have to fully, fully accept who you are, not just in the moment. I talk about two types of acceptance, deep acceptance and shallow acceptance. Shallow acceptance is the kind of acceptance that's just like, well, this is who I am and I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to be myself and raise my voice and just be inconsiderate of others. Deep self-acceptance goes all the way back to the history of what made you who you are today. And you accept all the good and all the bad. And on top of that, you're aware of yourself. So self-awareness is the other element that complements this. It's also awareness of what brought you to who you are today. What are your triggers? What are experiences that you've gone through that have shaped you to be who you are? 
Because like, if you know so much about self-love and forgiveness, compassion, clarity, surrender, those are the rooms and chapters in Welcome Home. If you know all those things, are they complementing who you are? Like, do you know who you are? You know all of those things, but do you know yourself? Because self-love for you is not the same as it is for someone else. Forgiveness for you is not the same as it is for someone else. So do you have like a specialized plan for yourself that is based on who you are? And if you don't, then you are not the one living this life and walking this path. It's like you're separating yourself from all of this knowledge. And so that was the disconnect for me. That's what stopped me from transferring knowledge to practice. And I told you right before we started this recording, like I've been reflecting on that these last few days because on my own podcast, which the theme of this season is authenticity. So I interviewed multiple people who are in different fields and talked to them about, you know, how do you maintain your authenticity with your presence on social media, for example. And the last person that whose episode was just released is a therapist. She and I were talking about grief and she was crying on the podcast. And I was thinking about like, this therapist knows everything. Like if you need proof that just knowing something doesn't mean that you can quickly apply it, this is your proof. Because here's a therapist who's experiencing grief of some sort and explaining it to you in a way where she couldn't hide her tears. So knowing doesn't like create this armor that's going to protect you. When you know something, you still have to experience it. And everything has been leading me to like, I wrote about it in Welcome Home. And I know this, you know, but Very recently, I've been thinking of how to write about it in a different way or from a different angle. And I was reading Brene Brown's newest book, and she said something, I'm just going to pull it up right now, that perfectly embodied what I was thinking. And I actually tweeted it out. So I'm going on my Twitter to read it out. As it turns out, being able to see what's coming doesn't make it any less painful when it arrives. Knowing the pain of betrayal doesn't mean that when you are betrayed, you're not going to feel betrayed or you're not going to have to process that to actually get through it. You know, when we tell people like you should know better and that really is what stops people from sharing their experiences because they're like, well, you're going to judge me. I don't need you to judge me. And I say this to my friends many times before I start talking. Not that my friends have a history of being judgmental in any way, but I make this very clear. I know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. I know what I should have done in this situation. I'm not talking to you to talk logically right now. I need to get this off my heart. I need you to listen. And that's it. Because most of us know what the right thing is. We struggle with doing the right thing for ourselves. And Just because we know that we are going to be judged for not knowing what we do know, like for not putting into application and to practice what we do know, like it doesn't mean that we don't share. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with that transfer, with that taking that step, taking that leap. We're human at the end of the day, and there's just no point in 
burying an experience or a story or something that we're going through just because we know better. Yeah, everyone out there knows better probably when it comes to like 95% of their experiences, but we're human at the end of the day and we're not always going to do what we know. But life is about the journey that gets us to a place where we treat ourselves with compassion and self-love and understanding and being, you know, the person that we feel most comfortable with, like that person is ourselves. And what I mean by that, like practically speaking, you know, when you call a friend of yours and you just, you want that comfort. You want that person to tell you, like, don't be so hard on yourself. You need to be that for yourself. You need to, I'm not saying it out of like, if you're not that for yourself, you're something's wrong with you. I don't mean that at all. I mean, I think most of us struggle with that. What I'm saying is it is such a beautiful thing to be the first place that you go to to self-soothe, to give yourself the love that you need, to give yourself the understanding that you need, to forgive yourself, to be compassionate with yourself, to get clarity on your situation and on yourself, to surrender to your emotions. That's why all of those rooms or chapters are in Welcome Home, because it's like, what room do you need to enter right now when you're struggling with something? Maybe it's the self-love room. Okay, what do we need to do? So for me... Any kind of problem that we go through in our daily lives, if we work towards being our own best friend and our own best ally and our own biggest person who understands us, like if we work towards being that for ourselves, that solves so many of our problems, not in a way that's like, you don't need anybody, you only need yourself. I don't mean that at all. I do believe that we need connection, we need people in our lives. But when you have such a strong sense of who you are, and you operate in life from a place of I will not change who I am to be seen or heard or loved or valued by someone else, The kind of people in your life will be the people who respect that and love that and value that and don't need you to crush yourself for them to be comfortable. Wow. I've been writing so many notes over here in preparation for the release of this podcast. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how I'm going to pick a top quote because you've just said so many powerful things. And the way that you just spoke to is such a wonderful note to end on because it feels like this simultaneous like summary, like we've come to the conclusion, but also what an incredible introduction and beginning to all of the amazing work that you've done from your new book to your podcast, which is called Stories of Soul. I love that name. It's brought up a lot for me. And as I've articulated a few times, like, you know, hearing the way that you've communicated this is so profound and unique for me and healing and also just like opening up all of these things to process (laughs) and ponder. And I'm so grateful for that. I imagine the listener is experiencing the same thing. And Even Brene Brown's new book, which I only vaguely knew about, you just got me to lean in so much to that. And I can't wait to dive into that too. And I feel almost at a loss for my own words because I'm sitting here just like trying to process it all. I've been nodding the entire time. And one thing that came up for me was 
how all of this that you've shared sounds almost familiar, not because I've heard it before. In some ways I have, but of course not from you or in this way, in this moment, but familiar in that I'm like, yeah, you're right. And this makes sense. But it goes back to exactly what you said about knowing something just because it feels familiar. And I know it and I agree with it. And I have that clarity now. Now the process for me and for the listener is to actually step into that next phase and do it and take, you know, make that transition between just knowing something and doing something. I think it's that is one of the most important things that you said, because it's often a form of protection. And I've always been very sensitive to that almost like egoic reaction of, well, I know this already because, or even I, I remember um, Brendan Burchard, who I used to follow a lot for business trainings. One of the most important things I heard him say was, well, I've already tried that. He was like um, kind of verbalizing something that people will say to him a lot. Like, well, I've done that already. I've already tried that or I've tried everything. And he, he was on stage at this time and he's like, really, you've tried everything. And it's such a funny phrase, the more you examine it, when someone says, well, I know that already. I've done that already. I've tried that already. As if it's possible to really know everything, to really have tried everything. The truth is we often say those as an excuse to not try more or to not dig in further because oftentimes we'll settle for that surface level experience as a coping mechanism, like to protect ourselves from the pain of trial and error of making mistakes. And I recognize how painful and I recognize how I've tried to play small and I've tried to, you know, be that good person and escape further pain. But actually there's pain in not trying and there's pain in not learning more. And there's it's not actually serving you. It's just a temporary protection. But life does not really offer us this ongoing protection that we seek. It's We have to constantly be moving through the pain. And it's like a pulsation in my experience of moments of this feels really painful. This feels really joyful. This feels kind of neutral. But I'm never staying in one of those states permanently. And I can't. And I think that You've helped me realize that today on a new level of it's okay that you can't always stay in some perpetual state. And when you reflect on how much people try to cope through drugs and alcohol, which, you know, they serve a time and a place and I don't think are inherently bad, but you examine that maybe somebody's drinking because they just want to numb out because it's too painful or they want to enhance their joy because they're just constantly seeking it. But we can't. And sometimes that's okay. Like it's the same thing when we say we associate shopping when you're going through a stressful period of time as a negative thing. But what if you've chosen to numb that way? To me, that's better than just not being aware of what you're doing. I do it sometimes. I say, you know what? I'm going to shop today because this is going to make me feel better. It's going to help me feel better. This is the best I can do right now. And I think about it, like if a friend of mine were to tell me I was feeling really down today, went shopping, like I would laugh at that and think that's cute. I wouldn't judge that and say, oh, wow. Yeah, you spent your own money because you feel down. Like, do you know what I mean? And same thing with any kind of numbing behavior. I think if you are aware of why you're doing what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with that. If you are aware to the extent that you're not allowing this to become such a, you know, something that has hold over you where you can't function without it, then that's a different, you know, something that we need to speak about, something that we need to work on in some way. 
but we have to stop being so judgmental towards ourselves and towards others and to the ways that we choose to heal on any given day and in any given moment. You know, we are not living someone else's life and no one is living our life. And in a way, the judgment of other people perhaps be a way of protecting ourselves from judging ourselves. It's like we put so much focus on others, like, you know, celebrities and gossip, friends. There's that comparison. Like, it's like a distraction from yourself. If you focus on how badly someone else is living their life, then it makes you feel better about your own without actually looking at your own life. And one thing I wanted to say earlier was most of us, Like most of our pain is not actually the pain we're going through, but it's everything that surrounds it. So for example, why do I have to go through this? Why did I have to go through this? Why do I have to heal from this? And what is this person going to think? And how long is it going to take me? Like all of that distracts us from the actual pain itself. So one of the strategies I have in Welcome Home is have tea with your pain. So I say when pain knocks on your door, let it in, sit with it, have tea with it, listen to it, understand it, and then walk it to the door because now it's time for another emotion or thought or feeling or experience to come in. So you are the one in control as long as you allow that pain in. When you don't allow it in, which is what we do when we numb completely, I don't even want to acknowledge that there's something that I have to heal from doesn't make the pain go away. It's still there and it's still knocking on your door. And it's just going to get louder and louder and louder with time. And you're going to adapt your life to the noise in the background. And so the noise in the background is controlling your life. The pain is controlling your life without you even acknowledging it. So why not just be the one in control and be the one who says, I'm going to feel you for an hour or a day or a week or maybe an hour a day for a week. You are the one in control. You have the power to do that. And if you have something that you're perpetually experiencing that you feel there is just no way for me to get out of this, again, back to what you were just saying, have you really tried everything? Try something new. And when a day comes that you've actually exhausted everything that you can do to heal from it or to move forward from it, then you can say, I've tried everything. But At the end of the day, that pain, and obviously I don't mean this when it comes to like certain diseases or illnesses, or I want people to really understand that the pains that we experience on a daily basis, that the experiences that we all share of exclusion of I'm not good enough, of I'll never be good enough, I'll never get there, I'll never be this person, I'll never this, I'll never that. Those very common pains that all of us experience, there is something that can be done about them. There is an answer. There is a solution. There is something new you can try. Don't submit to the end of your life before you've actually reached it. Yes. So many wise words and perspectives for me. I'm so grateful that you took the time for this conversation and grateful for all the work that you're doing because it feels like something I could speak on and on about with you and listen to you. And I'm so grateful that you have a podcast as well and multiple books and there's just so much to dive into. 
So I'm going to link to all of it in the show notes for this episode, plus the transcript, (laughs) because if you're like me as a listener and you want to go back and reread and ponder some of these points and beautiful articulations from today, that'll all be there on the podcast website for this episode, which is at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. In the podcast section, there is that full transcript. There's the YouTube version if you're not already watching this, so you can really experience. And let me try one last time. Nejwa? Yes. Nej. Yes. Okay. (laughs) If you want to take in just everything that she is, the YouTube version of this is available to you too. And links to everything. I have the links to your new book, Welcome Home, and your podcast and other things that you've mentioned here today. That's all in that one place at wellevator.com. And Nejwa, thank you again for your generosity and your time and the full expression of what you're doing for the world. It's just a phenomenal gift to me and our listener. And I just feel so full of gratitude for this wonderful conversation. So do I. This was amazing. And I think one of your worries that I was going to be answering the same questions I always answer, this was a very different conversation. So I'm happy that we... Yeah, we discussed everything that we discussed. And to anyone listening, I just, whatever it is that you are going through, I really want you to take this like from the core of my heart. There is someone else out there who's experiencing the exact same thing. You are not alone in your experience. And there is always, always, always something within you that is needing to be heard and seen and validated by you. And you can do that bit by bit and you can get yourself out of this darkness, however dark it is. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.